This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society, and we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to episode 24. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, A Cradle of Civilization, not the one you may be thinking of, not the one between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, not Greece or Rome or Egypt, reporter Amy Maxman traveled to a region called Nubia, and she brings back a story of an ancient society that built cities and temples and even pyramids, fabulous antiquities that are now in danger of vanishing forever. She joins us now. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks a lot. Good to be here. So, Nubia. It's a place I'd heard of, but I'm afraid I would never have been able to locate it on a map. Where is it? Uh, so, Nubia is in central Sudan. It also kind of overlaps a part of southern Egypt today, uh, and the Nile flows right through it. So, that's kind of northeastern Africa, but way south of where we think of as the uh, Egyptian civilization with all the pyramids and so on. So why did you go there? How did, how did you hear about this story? So I actually went to Sudan for another story. I went to write about a surgeon who was kind of fighting this terrible flesh-eating disease that's there. And while I was reporting that story, I thought I'd just check out the National Museum. Um, and I was just completely stunned by how awesome it was, not like in the design of the museum, but because of what it held. It had giant statues of pharaohs and it had some temples that had been removed from northern Nubia when the Aswan High Dam was built in the 60s. So those were there. The things that really caught my attention were like these ceramics and other objects that kind of had a mix of designs too. Like they had maybe ancient Greek designs on them and some things that were Egyptian uh, and also kind of like things we think of as like classically African designs on them. And that was really cool. And I talked to somebody at the museum and they pointed out that the reason for all of these, these gorgeous objects that were mixed like this was because the center was actually this giant hub maybe, you know, 3,000 years ago, just like New York City is today, where there was a kind of a lot of goods traveling back and forth through the area from all over the world. And after seeing all of that, I just sort of became obsessed with going back and seeing a lot more. Uh, to plot this on a timeline, uh, you said, what, 3000 BC? How does that compare with uh, the uh, ancient Egyptian society, the pharaohs and the pyramids? So certainly at that time, Egypt was around two. I think what makes Nubia, or I guess just around the Nile in general, what makes it interesting is that people were there since the beginning. So there are earlier things. So I guess the name Nubia is where we get a little bit tricky. What I wrote about mainly was the kingdom of Kush uh, or Kushites. And that's, I think sometimes those are referred to as Nubian. So the Kushites, they started around 2000 BC, but of course there were people there earlier. So you find very old drawings and rocks from, say, 3500 B.C. So let's talk about uh, what they did. First of all, I guess we should say that uh, people settled in the Nile Valley, right, when their home communities began to be uh, wiped out by dust storms and desert. Um, so they, they kind of gravitated to the Nile Valley. Uh, you say they organized a society there. What kinds of things did they build? Well, when you get into, right, the Kingdom of Kush, we start seeing settlements and towns. They also were, you know, kind of like the Egyptians in that they were decorative in death. So 
a kind of a classical Nubian architecture for necropolises would be these things called tumuli. They're kind of these burial mounds that might be surrounded by rocks or other objects. But also they built pyramids to commemorate the dead. And sometimes those pyramids have small temples outside of them. They're smaller on the whole, but I've heard, so one archaeologist told me there's five times as many. So what you're struck by is sort of the sheer number. So what's kind of neat is whereas Egyptians built these great pyramids for royalty, seems like the Kush were building them also for regular people, not just for royalty. So you'll see whole fields of pyramids, or at least when I was traveling, at least you'll see the bases of pyramids to give you some sense of how many At one site I went to, I asked the archaeologist, you know, have you found anything recently? And he just sort of casually said, like, well, there's about 50 pyramids. These were the bases of them because they had been kind of eroded down. So we went out and saw this whole field of, like, kind of square bases of pyramids. Some were really quite small, you know, as small as, say, like, six foot by six foot. Some of them were also interesting. I remember there was one that had the shape of a dome inside of it. So almost like a a cemetery of pyramids. Yeah. And then also the tombs had some sort of unique items, too. So, for example, the things that sort of stick out in my mind, for um, one period, one of the archaeologists found a couple of these incense burners that are also shaped like ducks within tombs. So he kind of thinks there's like sort of a fad where when you're burying your loved one, you stick a duck-shaped incense burner into the tomb. Um, And that was sort of a kind of a fad that was unique to that area for a little while. And what was their language? Um, The language is Meroitic. And very little is known about that. In fact, I only I met somebody who might be the perhaps one of the only people who can translate it. And he's still this is his pursuit of what he's working on. Um, it looks nothing like hieroglyphics. And he says this, it's not at all related to hieroglyphics. So I saw these sort of they look like gravestones uh, that have etchings of Meroitic into them. And he's sort of traced to some of those similarities to languages that are spoken all around Sudan, like some languages that are spoken by people in Darfur, some in Eritrea, some to Nubians today. The present-day language is called Nubian. And so he's presently trying to decipher it. So if you can imagine, this is nowhere close to what's known about Egypt, because at this point, there's plenty of Egyptologists who can read hieroglyphics. And no Rosetta Stone, apparently. So uh, how was all of this discovered? Well, it's been, you know, slowly documented for quite some time since, you know, the late 1800s. Uh, some archaeologists had gone down there and just seen sort of the more grand structures, like the big temples, the big pyramids. And then more recently, there's a decent amount of work going on there now. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of just sort of going to the place and having the funds and the ability to start slowly digging up what you find. For example, a lot of it's buried beneath sand. So what people might do is go out with something called a magnetometer that sort of can give you a sense of if there's something of different density below ground, and that that might give you a sense that there's something below there, like if it's a, a long, something that looks like it's a number of walls. So then you'll have archaeologists slowly start digging there um, and seeing what they find. And they're still digging, right? And they're still finding things. Oh, yeah. I was not prepared for how much they'd be finding things. I think, um, like, you know, any journalist who goes on a trip, the fear is that nothing will happen. Um, It was kind of the opposite problem where every site I looked at, it was almost silly the amount of just like no one around and just amazing discoveries like, um, oh, we just opened up this tomb for the first time. And oh, look, here's a mummy. There was no place that had nothing going on. 
And that's only right by the Nile. You actually described the unearthing of a mummy in, in your story. Did you witness that? That was cool. I didn't witness it. When I got there, this had been found pretty recently. And to give you a sense of what the archaeological conditions are like, so this team of archaeologists was staying in a house. And in the room where we're like, we greeted everyone and we went to join them for lunch, and there was this this head just sitting on the table along with a leg near it. And they had flesh on them. And the, the head was bizarre. It had matted hair on its head. And then the strangest thing is its tongue was sticking out. Apparently that happened. That can happen. She said it was probably like a natural thing that happened during decomposition. But she had found it pretty recently before we had gotten there. And that's just sort of where they were keeping it for the time being. So uh, we've been talking for a few minutes, and we haven't even gotten to what is kind of the main point of your story, which is that all of this is in danger of being wiped out forever. What's going on? Well, there's a number of things depending on the site you're talking about. You know, one reason part of Nubia was discovered by Western archaeologists originally was because of the Aswan High Dam that was built in Egypt. This is a hydroelectric dam. And it made a huge reservoir. And in the reservoir's wake, it drowned a lot of ruins. So right before the water came in, archaeologists went about, you know, documenting what was there and then moving certain things that could be transported. Similarly, now there's more dams that are being planned along the Nile. Uh, and these are extremely political to the extent where it's not really smart to easily report on them within Sudan. Because on one side, you have the government who is sort of secretive about making deals about the dams. Um, and then there's some resistance, understandably, by people who live in the towns that would be submerged if those dams are built. So it's a pretty hot topic. And those dams would, it's estimated they might submerge, you know, thousands of ruins and rock etchings and everything like that. So there's the dams in some places. In other places, the dams would raise the water tables so that the tombs would also fill with water. There's that. But then there's also the stuff that threatens archaeology, I guess, everywhere, which is just sort of development. So populations grow, especially people come to areas that are towns where they want to live. And also, so there's not only just more mouths to feed, which means more farming, but also people want to live a better life. So they might try and have bigger farms. Then what else? When I was driving in northern Sudan, you can see that there's a lot of illegal gold mining there. So you'll see people going out with metal detectors. Uh, and those metal detectors also can hit you know, things that are buried in tombs, so they'll loot the tombs. So that's another threat. I talked to one archaeologist, and he felt like that was the biggest threat to the sites that he's been working on. He's already had a number of tombs looted kind of recently, too. And one other thing that is threatening the, the ruins right now is simply just time and desertification and processes that sort of occur that are beyond our control. So specifically, I think probably the best known site in Nubia is called Moroi. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So that's recognized and protected. But with that particular one, because of other things, say, uh, I think there, they had a number of droughts in the 80s and 90s. And then also there's been a lot of grazing nearby. From all of these events, a lot of sand has blown into Moroi, which is this area of, it's really majestic. It's just in the middle of nowhere. There's these 43 pyramids that are attached to temples, and they're really intricately carved. Uh, and this is the, the place where I also saw um, some archaeologists uncovering the tombs for the first time where you could see goddesses painted on the walls. So anyways, it's a really majestic site, but you can just tell that all of the etchings are being kind of scraped away by sandstorms. And the sand, I guess, because Monroe is built within a basin, 
the idea is that the sand sort of moved in because it's becoming drier and, you know, maybe because of pastoralization, the brush that might have blocked the sand isn't isn't there anymore. So now you've got the sand that's sort of trapped in this bowl and it just whips around every day. So that's another reason why um, things are falling apart. Desertification, these are uh, kinds of natural forces that uh, nobody can really stop. Um, but all these dams uh, and the looters getting into tombs to, to steal precious metals, it's kind of hard to imagine things like this going on in those other uh, centers of antiquity that we all know about, uh, Greece and Rome and Luxor and so on. Why has there been so little attention to uh, the situation in, in Nubia? Well, for one, for depending on what the thing is. So for the, in the case with the dams, it, it's a sovereign country. So unless, you know, the UN decides that one of these sites is a World Heritage Site, which they have done for, say, Meroe, people can't go in and tell Sudan what to do. It's its own country. And um, if the government decides that it wants a dam, then I think it can build a dam and there's not really much anybody else can do about it. As far as development, so if people want to expand their farms and if they realize that there is sort of ancient property on that area, they might work with, there's uh, the National Corporation of Antiquities and Museums. There's uh, an agency within the government in Sudan that is sort of responsible for their antiquities. So let's say those farmers might go to that department and say what's there and maybe they'll work out a deal or maybe they won't. Uh, and it's also hard to sort of, you know, draw a hard line there. Those are complicated issues. You know, people have to feed their kids. They're they're not part of the world's anthropology museum. And in other cases, this stuff is all, um, you know, a lot of it's only coming to light now. I was in one area and this archaeologist and I were walking around the town where people live. Um, and you have to realize the places where I was traveling, there was often no running water. There was no electricity um, unless you had your own generator, which maybe only the archaeologists did. So right, there was one sand mud brick house that we were walking by, and the archaeologist pointed around to the back to me, and what happened there, and he had, dig he had dug a big pit, and he thinks there's actually some old settlements below this person's house. And the reason why he knew about it was that they actually had told him it's weird in their kitchen. They noticed that whenever anything like water flows in, it flows down this one hole, and it just seems to all drip down there. So it seemed like it was hollow below there, and sure enough, it was. So he's sort of working with that family to see, you know, what if we pay you to move? Would you be interested in that? So it's a lot of it is just kind of, you know, getting the trust of people and seeing if they will agree to sort of halt what they're doing or to move, you know, slightly in order for you to excavate. So why do you think Nubia hasn't gotten the kind of attention that all those other early civilizations like like Greece and Rome have gotten? There's a few reasons for that. Uh, one of them is it's it's not the most hospitable place to travel in. It's there's sandstorms. It's dry. It's hot. You know, even you know if you were talking about the past fifty years, it's not a comfortable trip. For part of it, I was in a boat without electricity, without running water. But even earlier, you could say, well, I guess Egypt was like that, too. Well, the British were really interested in Egypt in the 1800s and the early 1900s. There's a lot of classically trained Egyptologists there. So they dug in deep to Egypt. And, you know, understandably, Egypt has some magnificent pyramids. So that's not foolish. So I think they sort of were paying a lot of attention to Egypt and maybe not further south. 
But then the other part that you really can't dismiss is there's a huge role of racism in Western archaeology as it was. And I'm not just making that up. It's, it's quite explicit. So one of the archaeologists who's best known for his work in Nubia in the early 1900s, he would even write, you know, whenever he found a pyramid, he, he just explained, well, this is clearly built by a light-skinned race because Negroids couldn't have done something like this. Uh, so it's, it's pretty clear that people also just didn't expect there to be anything of worth further south and based on pigmentation of somebody's skin. And I think that plays into why it's not paid a lot of attention. So are you hopeful, Amy? Is there, are there any prospects that the, you know, the great bulk of this uh, civilization and its uh, creations uh, will somehow be preserved? Uh, or is it kind of doomed to uh, be wiped out? Well, you know, what's kind of funny about the whole archaeology racing against the clock thing is that's sort of how it goes. And the upshot of development and dams and everything like that is that sometimes it really provides that push for people to start funding more archaeological work and for governments, you know, including even Sudan's own government to sort of at least go and see, okay, what's there before we, you know, wipe this place out. So this is sort of driving some of the research there. And part of it is now, the other great thing is there are some Sudanese archaeologists who are leading some of the projects. So what's kind of cool is, A, they can, you know, work more than, say, a few months of the year there, but also they're going to be interpreting everything they find through a really kind of different lens than, say, when Americans or Europeans are doing it. So that's that's really nice. And third, there's uh, some really good tools out there right now. So the archaeologists that I saw, some of them, not, not only were they using this these methods to see what's below the dirt and to excavate that way, but they could use, say, cameras attached to kites or even drones to get a better sense of, like, the geometry of everything, where everything uh, is, is settled. And there's a researcher at the British Museum who is using, like, all of the images he takes of everything, and he's making this sort of, it looks almost like a video game. It's this interactive graphic where you can walk through the ancient settlements he's uncovering. And so me sitting here in California, I can go online, and it's almost as if I'm in Sudan walking, you know, through the old ruins. So at least that way, uh, they're preserved online. Um, I guess I'm hopeful that with more people talking about it and more of this going online, that it will make its way into textbooks and into classrooms, and then people sort of start learning about these great civilizations that existed in sub-Saharan Africa, things that we might learn a lot less about in school. That sounds unbelievably cool. How how can our listeners uh, access that? That's cool. Hopefully there's a link in the piece, uh, and it's, it's at the British Museum's website as well, and the researcher's name is Neil Spencer. Well, Amy Maxman, I want to thank you for going to Sudan to report this story for us and coming on the podcast to talk about it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Amy Maxman is an award-winning journalist at Nature magazine. Her work also appears in National Geographic, Wired, and Nautilus, among other outlets, including, of course, Undark, where her story about Nubia uh, is this month's case study.
Joining us now is Seth Manukin, our commentator on science and the media. Hello, Seth. Hello, David. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, I want to talk about a couple of uh, articles in Undark this month by our uh, tracker columnist, Michael Schulzen. Uh, the first one is about uh, an, a hardy perennial, which is radiation from cell phones and whether it can cause cancer. Um, can you uh, bring us up to date on the state of that debate? Yeah, this is a debate that actually has has gone back to, uh, in, in some ways, even before there were cell phones. Um, in the 70s, there were discussions and debates about electrical lines uh, and the potential cancer-causing effects of those. And this has been a sort of consistent anxiety and, and concern bubbling beneath the surface and, and something that some activists have really seized upon for decades in one form or another, despite the fact that there really isn't scientific evidence indicating that there is any risk. What Michael was writing about, and, and the reason this is back in the news right now, is because the California Department of Public Health released new guidelines for families who wanted to, quote, decrease their exposure to the radio frequency energy emitted from cell phones. And that story was then covered by Popular Science and Science Friday, the uh, radio show Science Friday, in a way that activists felt was was snide and, and dismissive. And so Michael was writing about the, the whole sort of hullabaloo. A popular science article had a headline something like, uh, uh, there's no possible way you can get cancer from your cell phone. You could you could duct tape the cell phone to your head and you wouldn't get cancer. Uh, is that true? Not, not, not that I'm thinking of trying it, but... Yes, right. I wouldn't recommend duct taping a, a, a phone to your head more uh, out of social concerns. But I think the underlying point that the popular science reporter was trying to make was that this is something that has been extensively studied, and there really is not evidence supporting any indication that that this is causing cancer and in fact you know the the it's it's most often pointed to as a, a potential factor in brain cancer and i think one of the sort of easiest to understand and most persuasive uh, illustrations of why the scientific consensus is really heavily weighted towards this not being a concern is that, you know, since the late 70s, when essentially there were zero cell phone users, today, when there are hundreds of millions, the rate of brain cancer has stayed virtually flat during that entire period. So logically, you would assume that if this was a, a major factor, then we would actually be seeing a pretty significant increase. So yeah, I wouldn't recommend duct taping a, a phone to your head, but certainly I think that the underlying point that popular science was making is correct, even if they, they made that point in a way that might have been uh, a little bit sarcastic. I want to ask you about another uh, column by our tracker columnist, Michael Schulzen. He writes about the actress uh, Zoe Deschanel and her advice to um, consumers uh, who visit the website uh, Attention. Um, 
Zoe Deschanel has a message for Americans too poor to buy organic food. Stop eating apples, avoid fresh tomatoes, give up on grapes, peppers, potatoes, and other items uh, among the so-called dirty dozen, a list of fruits and vegetables that uh, tend to carry more pesticide residues. This is not exactly a new trend. Uh, Celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow and even Tom Brady have been advising their followers on what they should uh, consume and not consume. What do you think about all this? This was it was a striking video that that Zoe Deschanel posted for a couple of reasons. One, just the 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 privilege implicit in a multi-million dollar celebrity telling people too poor to pay outrageous prices for organic food, that they should essentially just give up on whole categories of fruits and vegetables and instead eat mangoes and whatever else Zoe Deschanel deemed safe, I think is is really outrageous. It illustrates what I have found to be a thread in a lot of celebrity health advice, which is just this total myopic disregard for anyone who might not be as privileged as they are. Uh, And it's something I think you see from Oprah on down. It's something I wrote about uh, certainly a lot in relation to vaccines with Jenny McCarthy. The other thing that is, is, I think, really important to highlight here is that there's just no evidence that what she is recommending is healthy for you. It is certainly true that this this dirty dozen list of fruits and vegetables is a legitimate list, and there is evidence supporting the fact that these are fruits and vegetables that are more likely to use pesticides. But there is not evidence that just simply shopping organic is something that is going to make you a lot healthier. And so in addition to being really emblematic of this often white privilege that you see. It's also illustrative of the adage that that um, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. It, this is an issue about which it seems fairly clear that Deschanel does not understand the, the complexities of what she's discussing, and as a result is making recommendations that are not recommendations that she or, or anyone should be making. Shifting gears here to uh, an article in The Atlantic by the science writer Ed Young, his, uh, uh, his article has a, quite a provocative title, I spent two years trying to fix the gender imbalance in my stories. Um, why did he do that and uh, how did he do it? So th- I thought this was a really fascinating and, and important piece, and, and I give a huge amount of credit to Ed for undertaking this and undertaking it publicly and and discussing what he did publicly. So uh, this project was sort of initiated by a piece that actually one of his colleagues at The Atlantic named Adrienne LaFrance wrote two years ago where she analyzed a year of her stories and with the help actually of some MIT computer scientists and found that she was only quoting about 25% women, that only about a quarter of the sources that she was quoting were women. And uh, that article prompted Ed to do a similar analysis of, of some of his pieces. And he found something similar. Uh, he found that roughly 25% of the people that he quoted were women. And he decided that as opposed to just sort of thinking, well, I'm a 
progressive guy and I believe in equality and I believe in better representation for women and minorities in sciences, I am going to try and do something about it. So he set about beginning in 2016 and, and going until just very recently, making a spreadsheet of every story that he published and very actively seeking out more diverse sources. And as a result, he got the gender balance of his story, which he acknowledges is just one measure of diversity, but he got that up to something close to 50%, in fact, basically at 50%. Um, and I think that's it. it's really a lesson for not all of us in science journalism, but all of us in journalism, um, that oftentimes when we go to sources, either because we're on deadline or because we're juggling five different things, we sort of take the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance in, in many cases is oftentimes men, oftentimes white men. One of the really interesting things that I, I, I think Ed did was tried to figure out roughly how many calls it took him to reach a male scientist versus a woman scientist. And I think the number that he had was 1.3 calls to reach a male scientist and 1.6 calls to reach a, a female scientist, so indicating that it does take slightly more time to, to try and balance this out. He estimates that to be roughly 15 minutes more a story, or if he's writing four stories a week, roughly an hour a week, which, you know, is is not a huge amount of time. But I think what this really shows is that in order to try and affect these type of changes in our work, it is not enough to sort of assume that this is going to be taking place because these are principles that we generally believe in. This needs to be a proactive effort on the part of reporters and journalists, um, and not just reporters and journalists, conference organizers, panel organizers, journal editors, journal editorial boards. You know, if we as a field, um, and if science generally, if this is something that we believe in, we need to really take proactive steps to, to make sure that 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 is what is happening uh, when we write our stories and when we put together our work. Seth Mnookin is our media and science commentator. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, including The Panic Virus, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. Seth, as always, thanks. Finally this month, reporter Mira Sharma takes us to a botanical garden in Oxford, England, for an encounter with a truly unforgettable flower. Inside a humid glass greenhouse at the Oxford University Botanic Garden, amid tropical vines, orchids, and citrus, sits something straight out of the world of Dr. Seuss. It's big and red. Its huge salmon-colored petals unfurl like slumped skin. It looks like um, some pepperoni stuck to another piece of pepperoni. Beige lumps pucker its surface. It looks yellow and it looks a bit like a hedgehog because of all the spikes it has. Shiny spears protrude from its center. It's quite black inside. I don't want to fall in it anyway. This is the largest flower in the world. Raphalesia. 
Rafflesia. 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 More specifically, Rafflesia arnoldii, a flower that grows to be three feet wide, found in the rainforests of Southeast Asia. You couldn't call it pretty. <laughs> As you can see, it's, it's, it's a pretty ugly, monstrous-looking thing. Chris Thorogood is head of science and public engagement at the garden. Rafflesia is a parasitic plant. It has no green pigment, no chlorophyll, and it has no leaves, no roots, and never will have, um, because it's a complete vegetable vampire. So it steals all of its food and nutrition from the roots of other plants. Mostly, the Rafflesia lives within the tissues of tropical vines, but occasionally... Unpredictably, it bursts into bloom for a brief eight days. Thorogood was able to see the flower in its native habitat several years ago. There's a, a botanically magical place called Mount Kinabalu in the north of Borneo, a mountain that famously is dripping with orchids and pitcher plants and various other botanical marvels. And there's, there's an area near the base of the mountain where, if you're lucky, you can find Rafflesia in flower growing on the side of, of someone's old farm. Um, and a local took me to go and see one in flower. In this magical setting, the plant itself conducts a kind of sleight of hand. It mimics rotting flesh to attract pollinating flies. It not only looks a little bit like a corpse, but it actually smells ghastly. It smells horrendous. So it's like a bogus dead animal to attract pollinating flies. Given its remote provenance, the Rafflesia's appearance at the Oxford Botanic Garden is unusual. I think fake. It's fake. Yes, the flower is indeed fake. Ultimately, I think of this as being a, th a 3D oil painting. Thorogood sculpted the flower with layers of papier-mâché, plaster and clay, carefully painted with oils and textured with varnish. It's a long-term aspiration and ambition of Oxford Botanic Garden, like many gardens across the world, to actually grow this what we can think of as a giant botanical enigma because very little is known really about the life history of this plant and it's so difficult to grow and to propagate. It's never been grown in the Western world before. But in the meantime... What I wanted to do was to recreate this plant for people who don't have the opportunity to see it because very few people are, are fortunate enough to be able to go to the, the remote rainforest where this plant grows and actually see one in flower. The first Westerner to identify the Rafflesia was a Frenchman in the late 1700s. But on his way back to Europe, his discovery was seized by the British, who were at war with France at the time. Years later, British botanists collected another Rafflesia specimen. They knew about the Frenchman's earlier effort, so they rushed to publish a name for the plant to ensure that credit went to a British botanist. Joni Adamson, a scholar of environmental humanities at the University of Arizona, says that European colonialists often used botany to wield power. You can look at the journals, the travel narratives of explorers, and you can see how they're always casting their eye about for the next sort of big economic bounty. I guess it's sort of like the quest for gold. It's a quest for the rare, the quest for beauty and the possibly life-changing. But while these explorers often kept their treasures out of sight so they would remain as curiosities for the rich, Chris Thorogood wants to do the opposite. I wanted to bring this to life so that more people have the opportunity to see this amazing flower um, in as realistic a way as possible. By bringing this elusive plant to the public, Thorogood is demystifying it and drawing attention to its highly endangered status. Its few habitats are threatened by logging, land clearing and construction, and the flower itself is often illegally collected. 
Thorogood hopes his fake Rafflesia will not only spark curiosity about the natural world, but ultimately build a sense of responsibility for it. I personally think people have to connect with something before they, they understand the, the relevance and the importance of conserving and, and preserving it. If people can appreciate the intricacy, the beauty and, and the magic, really, of, of some of these plants and the places that they grow, that's a first step in, in informing people of the importance of it and of conserving it for future generations. For Undark, I'm Mira Sharma. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark. Dark.